Roxo Media House. Welcome back to Fortitude, everyone. J.W. Wilson, Britton Payne here with part two of Chris Cassidy interview. Um, the first part, if you haven't seen it, uh, don't watch this one first because the first part's as good as the second part, some might say. Uh, welcome back to the show, Chris. Thank, Thank you, you for uh, being back here again. Uh, we just finished up part one. You had decided to, you, you had become uh, when accepted into astronaut school at NASA. Uh, starting there, um, the call, to, the call. You got the invitation to join NASA mm -hmm. after you applied. How did that? How did that go down in the family, your life? Well, it was interesting. I was actually deployed to Afghanistan. Well, let me back up. Um, when when NASA has an astronaut class, a call for applications, everybody submits their application. It gets whittled down to to. Um, about 120 people or so that they bring to Houston for a week-long interview. This is when I was there. It's the model is slightly different now, but oh, a week-long interview, mm -hmm. and um, and they can't do all, every, all those weeks at once, and they're they're broken up. So I was I got interviewed in in September, and um, and the very next week I was deployed to Afghanistan, and the and the selection office knew that, and they said, okay, well we'll call you if we need anything. So I did the whole six months of my second tour in Afghanistan, <clears throat> kind of anticipating, am I going to hear anything or not? And they don't really give you any feedback. And you really don't know if you're advancing through the process until um, the little old lady neighbor in our house in Norfolk, Virginia, saw my, uh, my wife mowing the lawn. And she walked out and said, some guys from the FBI were here asking about Chris. <laughs> and she told me that and we both figured out, ah, that's, um, they're doing a background investigation. So at least I'm getting a little more yeah. advanced in the process. And, and so I, in April, so September all the way till April. And then I got a, because they knew I was really hard to get in touch with in Afghanistan. I got an email that said, Hey, please call the selection office on Monday at noon. Well, as luck would have it, I was returning to America that weekend. And so Monday at noon, I was actually in my house in, in Houston, in, in uh, Virginia. And for whatever reason, the phone rang there and I was supposed to call them and we're, you know, you're, it's one of these deals like Ferris Bueller, you're watching the yeah. clock tick, tick, yeah. and it's going backwards. And uh, like a minute before noon, they called our phone, our home phone. And I'm like, you get it. No, you get it. You get it. Okay. I get, I answered it. And the gouge is, if it's the head of HR making the call, you're not going to be an astronaut. If it's the chief astronaut's voice you hear, there's a good chance he's calling to tell you you're going to be an astronaut. And who told you that? Was that Shepard? Or, or it's kind of like the, once you get in the process, you hear different yeah. things and you yeah. just kind of learn stuff. And uh, and and he said, "Hi, this is Kent Rominger, who who was the chief astronaut at the time." And I'm like, "Hey, Chris, we're just wondering if you'd like to come work for us at NASA." And and uh, <laughs> cover my cover the phone i'm like yes 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 oh yes sir yeah thank you very much yeah uh and that started it right away you know we put our house on the market a couple weeks later moved to texas and um and i've been been here since then that was the summer of 2004 i assume you're required to retire from the u.s naval Navy no, department or no. that's a bad assumption so the when you when we pick astronauts if you're a civilian you come into the government civil service program and that's how you get your paycheck. And, and if you're active duty military, like I was, it just becomes your duty station. So a lot of people like you, JW, think that, that it's a whole separate thing. I just transitioned uh, my duty station to Houston. I re remained active duty, my paycheck, my pension kept, you know, building up towards pension. Oh, and all that's that. great. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Very nice. So you're, you're now an astronaut. Uh, going through all those things for several years, at least, uh, 2008, STS-127, the Space Shuttle Endeavor. You, when, when, how does that call go that you will be flying on this on operation? And kind of walk us through that if you don't yeah. mind. Can I ask before that, yeah. like training-wise, like, yeah. what, what does that look like? You show up there and, and you're already in tip-top shape because you're just coming off of Afghanistan, but what's the training like? Right, exactly. So no, you're fine. you... Um, as I mentioned, the, the astronaut class 
uh, comes together and it's it's a variety of people we had military non-military pilots non-pilots engineers phd researchers we had three school teachers um some japanese astronauts in our class too so you're this really disparate group of people with different experiences and different strengths and weaknesses and the job of the initial training is to get everybody from that point to a group of space operators you know so you know how to fly the space shuttle and live on the space station um the first two years you're an astronaut candidate and so you're not eligible for a mission you're just going through it's like graduate school for space and mm-hmm. you spend half the day in classroom and then the other half of the day in a simulator or flying the t-38 which is a jet trainer aircraft down in ellington field in houston um then eventually you start getting in the large pool there's a humongous pool there where we train for spacewalks called the nbl nbl stands for really giant pool okay. uh, n- neutral buoyancy laboratory yeah Think of a high school gymnasium with a space station in it filled mm-hmm. with water. So really large training facility. And, and, and you, you learn how to operate the space suit and use the tools that we use on spacewalks. So all of that is part of it. To include Russian language training, which was by far the hardest part about astronaut training for me, was, was learning to speak Russian. I'm still lousy at it, but, uh, but it's every week for all that time. And, um, and then you graduate from being a candidate now you're a full-fledged astronaut what that really means is you're waiting you're in line and you're at the back of the line waiting for your turn to be called and at some point in the process a couple years later so i my my first launch i got selected in 2004 summer 2004 my first launch on endeavor was summer 2009 so there's five years uh two years i was an astronaut candidate one year leading up to 2009 was training with my crew so there's about a two-year period in between there mm-hmm. where you're supporting other missions you're mm-hmm. working in mission control you're um, helping out with whatever jobs are needed and just kind of getting more savvy and more smart about nasa as a whole and what what does it mean to be a good astronaut doing a lot of public outreach and that sort of thing uh at some point though the chief astronaut again the same guy that called me he calls you into the office and and he goes, hey, Chris, come see me. And you're you're thinking, did I park in the wrong spot? <laughs> did I do my time card? Yeah. You know, am I in trouble? That pronunciation, that Russian pronunciation. Yeah, did yeah. I get that right? Right. Did my home <laughs> Russian homework. Did they wrap me out for not doing it? <laughs> um, but he says, hey, we'd like to fly, be part of the crew of STS-127. And uh, and then you get together with your 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 buddies and uh, and you start training and preparing. The, and my, that was my first mission. My second two missions were on a Russian Soyuz, which is only a crew of two, and both of those were cosmonauts. So entirely different training experience because the shuttle, we were all seven of us lived in Houston. Yeah. And we woke up, drove to work, lived in, did simulators and training, and then went home and, uh, and then launched from Florida. And the, uh, the, the, the Russian launches, I would go to go to Moscow for a month or two, come home for a month, go there for six weeks, come home for two months. So a lot of time back and forth, uh, at, with my Russian cosmonaut buddies. Uh, and we, we can, it's an interesting time of it to talk about that whole Russian dynamic too. And I'd love to talk about it. We'll get to that in a second, but, um, so just completely different experiences between the two vehicles and the two, uh, cultures. But, uh, maybe I'll talk about what it's like on that first launch. Yeah, yeah or yeah, even ever. prior to you're doing all this technical prep, right? Technical prep. Yeah. Then you get the call from the cap, and it's like there's got to be something emotionally in you that's like, I'm going to space. Like that that you kind of get away out of your own technical head and say, I'm going to space. I mean, so it's interesting that you say that because even when I got the call. And he told me I was part of the crew. You're excited because you've anticipated this, but you still don't have this I'm going to space feeling yet. At least I didn't. Mm-hmm. It all, I don't want to say it seems fake, but you're just absorbed in your immediate right now. What do I got to do today? What's, what do I'm preparing for next week? And you're very just task at hand driven. And um, kind of like a wedding where it's just really your engagement 
is sort of just between you and your spouse for a while. And then you send invitations and mm-hmm. the cat's out of the bag. And now everybody's excited for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And everybody's got anticipation of this exciting day. Mm-hmm. It's the same analogy. You're training and yourself and you and your family and your crewmates, families are happy and you have barbecues together and mm-hmm. all that. But at some point, you mail out invitations to launch to a whole bunch of friends and family, and then their excitement starts to build. And that's when it started to hit me like, oh, wow, I really am going. And then you get to Florida uh, in, in the, we, we go into quarantine. Like I, I knew what the word quarantine meant long before you guys did. Yeah. Um, you go into quarantine about 10 days before launch, you start it in Houston, five or six days before launch, you fly from Houston to Florida. And, uh, uh, all the guests, launch guests come in about three days before launch. And then all of a sudden comes launch day. And I remember on launch morning is the first time I had that, that feeling that you asked about, like, whoa, I'm really going. Cause you're packing up your room, you're handing somebody your keys and your passport and your wallet and your cell phone that they lock up in a safe. You got to, you know, it's, it's this weird feeling that you're, you're leaving the planet and you might not come back. Yeah. And, and that's a conversation that we do have with, with, um, the psychologist team. And then you got to have it with your family too, and have your affairs in order. I mean, cause if just look at the shuttle, it flew a hundred and 135 times and twice it, the crew didn't make it. But I got to think your seal background helped tremendously with that. No, it did. It does. It does. And, and, but you realize that there's variables that you can't control and what the, the similarities between both, um, careers is that you train and prepare and stack the deck in your favor of success as much as you both. In both cases, we're a group of people trying to accomplish a hazardous mission and do it safely and do it well. And in SEAL training, you train and train and train, and then you go to do a mission, you gather intelligence, you go at nighttime, you use the element of surprise, you do everything you can to stack the deck in your favor. And, and, but there's things that you can't control, which are largely driven by the enemy. In, in space flight, you have that same deep, rich training experience. The engineers really think through all of the what ifs that can happen with the vehicle and the technical systems. But there's some stuff that you don't have control of, and and that's the environment, and that's this what that whatever is going to happen that day. Right. Um, what did you, if you, if you mind us asking, what did you, what do you say to your wife whose name is Peggy? What do you tell her before launch? Is that something you can share? Like if, if yeah, something goes wrong, what, that she, conversation. She, uh, ironically, she couldn't be there on this last launch because she had to leave for COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so on launch day, we talked on the phone, uh, but. Um, you know, you just say normal stuff. Love you. Okay. I'll talk to you. Talk to you from space. Mm. Uh, you don't really say, well, what if, yeah, what if? that conversation happened five months ago and you talk about it one or two times, you make sure your will's in order and right. you kind of tie that Fair. up in a bow and leave, leave it yeah. there. Yeah. Okay. Then uh, let's talk about space shuttle never launch. What, what, what does that feel like if you can put it in? So our crew has this horrible, um, uh, um, record that that we have the most launch aborts for weather so five we launched on the sixth attempt so five attempts over the course of about six weeks um oh my we woke up thinking it was launch day and i tell kids like imagine your mom and dad tell you tomorrow's christmas mm-hmm. and you're all excited and you wake mm-hmm. up and you're sitting at the top of the stairs waiting for them to say come on down with the cameras and and you wake up and you're there and your parents come around the corner and go, oh, it's not going to be today. It's going to be Thursday. And Thursday <laughs> come around and go, oh, no, no, no. It's going to be two weeks from now on Wednesday. And you go, oh, okay. Eventually, after five times of that, you really don't believe it's going to be Christmas. Yeah. So um, that happened on two of those five uh, false attempts. The sixth one really happened. But two of those five, we went through the whole nine yards, got did the whole day, drove out to the pad, buckled in, and the countdown goes off. At nine minutes before launch is when the final go for launch happens. And they said no go. Weather related? Weather, yeah, it was sure weather. And then the other three that we didn't get in the vehicle, it was a technical problem that we knew. It. We woke up thinking it was launch day, and at some point in the day they, they said, no, we got technical problems. So, And the funny part is 
Each crew member gets 250 launch guest passes to go to Florida and watch. Oh, man. And it's so easy to fill 250. You know, you go to yeah. one, you go to the level of cousins and boom, you're there. Um, and uh, by the time we actually launched, there was, I think, 11 or 12 like, people I had in the stands because everybody else had to go to work and yeah. go back to school and yeah. they can't hang out in Florida forever. Um, so it was, it was really, really interesting. But so that day, you wake up, it's it's about four o'clock in your duty day is when launch is scheduled for. It's not four o'clock on your watch necessarily, but we adjust our sleep schedule so that mm -hmm. it is. So you have plenty of time. You wake up, you maybe exercise, go for a run, whatever, just, you, whatever to chill your nerves. Um, do you sleep the night before? You do. By this time, you're like, it's probably not going to happen. So I'm going to. That's very true. On this mm -hmm. one, I was like, I don't believe it. And the weather forecast was iffy anyway. So yeah, I slept like a baby probably. The, um, you wake up, you do some stuff, you have you have lunch, and uh, and then you go into the suit room and put the suit on, and then you walk out. And you've probably seen pictures of astronauts walking out, waving as they go onto a bus. You're in the orange orange suit. Mm -hmm. And that's when the hype starts to build, you know, because there's reporters and people and yeah. outside there, cameras snapping away. And, um, and you get onto the bus, and we had a pretty funny, jovial crew, a lot of movie quotes and a lot of kind of just fun banter the right stuff was it all all just astronaut movie uh -uh. no no yes. no. <laughs> no we had Tal talladega nights was a big one yeah but, uh <laughs> so a lot of shut up chip yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh so you ride this bus out it's like a 20 minute ride to the pad and as you get closer there's a helicopter overhead there's police escorts there the roads are all nobody's on it once you go past the, the viewing stands, now you're, there's nobody out there. And you start to really anticipate the excitement of it. And then yeah. you get there and the doors open and you get off and you're just kind of looking up at this vehicle that's on the pad and energy coming out of it and steam and noises and creaks and moans. And you there's one person standing in the elevator waiting, for, beckoning you to come in and get in and you ride up to the top and you crawl in one by one. There is a telephone up there. And you can, depending on where you are, and this, the first person to load has to go right off the elevator and right in. Mm -hmm. Everybody else has a second or two to, to make a phone call. I remember on one of the attempts, I called my brother and said, hey, here I am getting in. And we both mm -hmm. thought that was pretty cool. Um, and you strap in and you're there for about two and a half hours, actually, yeah. for a long time. And we astronauts do wear diapers, it's true. And you use it there because mm -hmm. you're lying on your back for two hours and... and uh, <laughs> Like you wouldn't have made it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they didn't it, know what happened at break, Chris. Thanks yeah. For spoiling it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then we got on this particular day, we got to the T minus nine hold. And I, we'd been looking at gray clouds and whatnot out. So we weren't really sure if it was go or no go. And they, they said, you know, um, they go around the room. You're listening to the room in Houston and they're like, GNC, go. Avionics, go weather go and we all looked at each other like oh my god all right here we go fist bumps and yeah and uh at five minutes before launch you close and lock your visor uh make sure your gloves are on tight you really just that that point you're just laser focused all that talladega night humor out the door it's complete game on switched on super bowl mode um communication is very crisp like fuel cell check main engine uh, engaged, you know, that kind of thing mm -hmm. at, at, uh, T T minus, uh, 30 seconds, I think the onboard. So up until then the, the computers were controlled through the umbilical cord. Then the onboard navigation takes over and you see the gauges all kind of switch and move and hone in at six seconds before launch, the main engines ignite because they're liquid fuel. Yeah. So if, if the reason we do that for six seconds is if, if an engine is unhealthy, you can just rotate a valve and, and turn turn the engine off and abort the launch. But the white solid rocket motors on the side mm -hmm. are solid fuel. Like you can poke your finger into it like a pencil eraser looks like. And so once they ignite that, there's no valve, there's no nothing. It's you're going. Mm -hmm. So the health of the engines is, is assessed for those six seconds. And then T minus zero, everything lights and you, and off you go. And it's just really, really violent, bumpy ride. Um, the, for how long? So the thrust of the solids lasts for two minutes. 
And those are, turns out, are, are the most uh, violent nature of, of the launch. And so the total launch is around eight and a half minutes, 8.45 or so. At the end of two minutes, the white solid rotor, motors fall off, and then it becomes super smooth and, and almost so smooth that I couldn't tell that we were moving. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the G-forces um, spike up and the solids fall away and you, you go back to lower Gs for a little bit and then you start picking up the Gs. And I remember looking, thinking to myself, is this normal? I looked at the commander. If he's cool, I'm cool. And he was fine. So it was all good. And yeah. the bulk of the thrust in the beginning you're using to get altitude and then you pitch over and now you're starting to use the thrust to gain speed. Mm-hmm. And you you launch... Obviously, on the coast of Florida, the engines cut off somewhere on the um, New England seacoast, mm-hmm. and uh, and no, a little little beyond that. But you uh, uh, you're basically paralleling the, the eastern seaboard, um, and and uh, it's an amazing, amazing. How fast way. and how many G's are we talking about? The vehicle monitors itself and throttles back to around three and a half G's for to protect the equipment and the people. Um, and uh, and you ultimately are targeting uh, about seventeen thousand five hundred miles an hour, which is the speed of Earth's rotation, roughly. Uh, it, it's more about what at what speed. So, what does it mean to be in orbit? That's the real question. Like, if you could freeze the space station at its altitude, which is around two hundred fifty miles, three hundred miles varies. It it's around ninety percent of the gravity that we have right here. So you say, mm-hmm. why doesn't it come crashing to Earth? Well, it is coming crashing to Earth, but it's going so fast forward that the Earth is curving underneath it. Okay. Uh, so, so the speed that you have to achieve is driven by the altitude that you're going to. Interesting. And I'm it, there's so much physics. so much going into it. I it's it hard for me to, like mm-hmm. you know, that's about my explanation of it. So, when do you get to uh, move freely about the cabin? So, um, <laughs> in. The engine cut off, and and for me it was right away because my job was to take pictures of the external fuel tank. If you remember the space shuttle Columbia, it crashed on reentry. The reason it crashed is because on launch, chunks of foam from the tank fell off, and at high velocity, that foam had enough energy to poke a hole in the wing. And so when they they lived the whole mission, did the whole mission, didn't know it, and they came back into Earth, and the plasma from reentry just ripped the wing right off because mm. it got through the heat shield. Mm. Um, so we learned from that that if we can determine that there's no chunks of foam missing, then you're reasonably sure that you're safe. So my job was to be the guy that takes detailed mapping photographs of the tank right after we separated. Wow. And so I knew this was an important job and it's a funny story about it, but I so I had rehearsed in my head Engines off, gloves off, helmet off, camera, t- unbuckle pictures. You know, I had over and over yeah. in my head because I'm new guy, my first job. I don't want to mess it up because I, I, I knew these photos were critically important. And um, so I, I just had it out of rote memorization, did exactly what I was supposed to do. And then right about the time I had to change the camera lens, I dropped the camera down. And I'd been looking like through this straw yeah. at this orange thing. And, um, and now I realize that there's earth behind it and that was the first time i saw saw earth and it blew me away and and i realized we were over the straits of gibraltar basically we were over europe and we're just a half an hour or so into the mission and and uh is it emotional does it like uh, a little bit yeah like holy cow i'm really here Mm -hmm. how special is this and Mm -hmm. all this training all this stuff i'm here and we survived launch and um and then you go all right get back to it yeah yeah. Okay, this one takes you to the International Space Station. I, I read that this is the first time in history that 13 people were together in space, and mm-hmm. that still is a record. Um, that's pretty pretty cool. Uh, you made your first spacewalk, which lasted roughly six hours. Uh, would you tell us, apparently there was a CO2 leak in your helmet that ca- caused you to cancel the rest of that particular spacewalk? Well, the CO2 it wasn't a leak. It was, I was, I was so amped up and working so hard that I was producing more CO. I was producing CO2 at a rate faster than the suit could keep up with it. Oh wow! Did they teach you how to breathe in those things? Yeah, like- they talk to you about it and tell you, but it's, it's until you do it, it's hard to understand what pacing yourself is like. Cause yeah. I didn't feel out of breath at all, but you know, with the amp nature of it and you're there. And, mm-hmm. um, so it was entirely my, my fault. Mm-hmm. 
but I like to joke around with my buddies and say, I can get my stuff done in twice as fast. So yeah. it's all good. <laughs> yeah, no, but, um, uh, so that mission was wonderful. I, uh, our crew did five spacewalks. I got to do th three of them. The other two I was involved with and in suiting up my, my friends and, and, uh, mm -hmm. just fantastic two weeks. Shuttle missions are two weeks long. We went to the space station, delivered and installed components of the space station, but then, and then came home. And the reason there were 13 people there is because there were six people on the station and the shuttle we brought, we brought, uh, seven. So mm -hmm. for that two week period, there was, there was 13 folks. The first time the hatch opens for your initial spacewalk, is there anything you can share that would give us some in, in, insight to it's, what you were thinking? It's an, it's an amazing thing. And you're going around the world every 90 minutes. So half of that is the daylight <laughs> and half of that is darkness. So you don't really know if it's going to be day or night when you open the hatch. And whoever designed the airlock, they put the hatch on the floor. I, I wish they had put it in the ceiling or something because when you open the hatch, you're looking right at earth and your earth brain is still there. Yeah. And imagine you went to the tallest building in New York city or something, and you looked out over the edge and your earth brain tells you, Whoa, back away. This is not safe. Don't be here. Do you have a height steal? You don't have a claustrophobia deal. No, I, I have You don't have darkness heights. I don't have a heights thing, but it, it, it's still visually hits you like, Whoa, I could fall. Yeah. And you have to, you know, settle into the fact that you can let go of your hands and you're not going to fall. You, effectively, your body is going 17,500 miles an hour also with the vehicle that you're, that you're next to. Yeah. Now, we never take our hands off without being tethered mm -hmm. like a rock climber on a steep face. You know, you're always tethered in some way. And if when you go to time to move, you disconnect a tether that is a short one and we have this long retractable dog leash type thing that that goes with us back and forth so but you feel no pull right i mean there's there's no there's no feeling like there's force. no feeling of of force you the retractable dog leash actually is only force because it has a slight pull and the reason it does mm -hmm. is if you did fall off it would pull you back to wherever it's hooked to yeah uh, but in terms of air resistance or any of that there's no sensation just a visual sensation of movement yeah you're looking down you see oh there's the gulf of mexico oh there's atlanta oh that must be washington dc oh new york city boston you're gone um, did you see some of those places that you had been over in afghanistan and it oh yeah some you, memories and like think of like and even seeing them at night and lit up and stuff like that that's i think every one of us does that you, you we love looking at earth but what's particularly cool is to look at places that you know what it looks like on the ground and you can kind of picture and, and to have this view from from space looking down and knowing the area and you and you can like I live my town in Maine has a river but you don't see it's not like you're looking at Google Maps where there's a border between Massachusetts and New Hampshire yeah. and New Hampshire and Maine and you can tell where the highways are no, it just looks like this big blob. Mm -hmm. So you actually have to find my hometown. I would I would find Cape Cod, easy to see. Yep. Count river inlets up from Cape Cod and, and know that that was a river in my town, and, and that's how I could find it. Oh, that's cool. Describe the ISS for us, please. So the ISS um, is a total footprint. If you put it in on a football field, it would stretch from end to end. But that includes the solar rays and all the external features that allow it to exist, you know, support life, basically. The living component, I like to describe it as eight or nine school buses kind of connected together yeah. this way and some sideways and one or two up and down. Mm -hmm. um, so there's plenty of room. You know, a school bus is not very wide, but there's lots of places to be. And in fact, on a given day, it, when it's particularly on this last mission, when it was just three of us there for the whole most of the whole six months, we had some visitors, the SpaceX guys, um, halfway through. But there'd be there'd be days where I wouldn't see my crewmates for until lunch, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah. there's one, one gym area. So we all wrote, we all generally bump into each other in the gym throughout the day, taking turns on who's going, uh, the Russian side has a toilet. We have a toilet. The Russian side has sleeping quarters. We have sleeping quarters. They have a kitchen. We have a kitchen. So those basic human functions kind of drive where you spend a lot of your time. Mm hmm. But it's International Space Station. You're all over the place going different things. Now, generally speaking, Russian equipment, the cosmonauts maintain and operate. American equipment, we maintain and operate. But we're trained on their stuff, and they're trained on our stuff. But just 
it would be weird if I went into your garage without asking you and took your hammer. Yeah. Same thing. It's just courtesy up mm-hmm. there. They come in and, hey, can I borrow your whatever? I'm like, yeah, here. Uh, I'm asking for a friend. What's uh, what's the toilet situation like up there? He's a plumber. I'll just. Yeah. So <laughs> I get asked about um, going to the bathroom so much. I that, saw the kids that, on that documentary ask you that too. Well, I so I decided to make a video of it. It's on YouTube. You can you can search Chris Cassidy Space Toilet. And uh, I go, it's, it's pretty funny, I think, and go into detail on how it works and your plumber friend might, because we're actually plumbers too uh, when we're up there. Mm-hmm. If, we, if it breaks, you fix it. And, and the toilet is actually, all joking aside, one of the critical items, because if it's not working, it's all stopped sick, until yeah. that thing is fixed. Right. I mean, we have alternate methods. You can, there's bags and stuff, but you don't want to do that for mm-hmm. That's a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Nice. We'll we'll check that out for sure. And then the last last comment on the first uh, mission reentry. Reentry is different from the Soyuz, I think, right? Yeah. On the shuttle, um, there's a there's an upstairs and a downstairs, flight deck and mid deck, we call it. And so three four people sit upstairs, three people sit downstairs. On reentry, I was sitting downstairs. Um, on launch, I was upstairs, and then Tom Marshburn and I switched places just for experience. So I couldn't see. There's no windows down there. I couldn't see. Uh, but as you you come through the atmosphere, the G, you're you're you have zero G, and then the air, the craft air, the spacecraft starts inter, intersecting the atmosphere, and G, that the G forces start to pick up, and you start to experience the Gs, and you're used to no gravity, so even just a tenth or two tenths of a of a G, feels like one G, like Earth, and and it, it spikes up to three three and a yeah. half Gs, so it's pretty intense and. Um, but then the shuttle is effect- effectively a glider. We burn the engine somewhere over the Indian Ocean to target a piece of concrete in Florida, which to me is amazing. Mm-hmm. And you glide in, and um, you might have to do some maneuvers if you have too much. It's better to have too much energy than not enough, right? You, you don't want to land in the Gulf of Mexico if you're trying to get to the coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. It's better to have to burn off a little energy above the airfield and, and land. Uh, and so we did, lined up, and, and because I was downstairs... I couldn't see when we landed, but I could hear the pilot and the commander talking about airspeed and altitude, so I knew we were close, but it was so soft, I couldn't feel, I couldn't have told you that the main landing gear touched the ground. It's not it, like an, air, an airplane at all? No, I mean, it, it's the same concept, right? Yeah. But but the between pilot skill and the guidance system, it just really smooth. Mm-hmm. And then we, we rolled out, you roll down the runway for a while just on the back two wheels, and eventually... It loses enough momentum, and the the main landing gear falls. The nose mm-hmm. falls down, and that's when you really can tell because we're basically sitting right above the nose gear, and boom, and then you you roll to a stop and immediately go into quarantine. For- uh, there's no quarantine. I was I was at Subway uh, getting a sandwich about four hours after. What a celebration! Yeah, and I remember thinking we need to be sponsored by them. That was yeah. a nice plug there, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> I I remember thinking that. The people in in the store and the person taking my order, they had no idea. I was like, <laughs> yeah, no you way. have no idea. And even if you told them, yeah, they, they wouldn't, wouldn't believe even believe it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you land and you got to do some medical stuff. It's a little bit different on a shuttle because it's only a two week long mission. So they're yeah. um, as long as you're healthy and feeling fine mm-hmm. that evening, you can go be with your family. You feel Florida. heavy. You feel tired. What do you feel like? You feel it's better to answer that question after the six months. I, I the two week mission, I just. I I don't know. I, I didn't feel overly burdened with, with adaptation process. It, it, yeah. Within a day or two, I felt kind of normal. On the second one, you, you on the, ex- Expedition 35 in 2013. And then on, Expedition 60, 62. You yeah. were, you're aboard the Soyuz, the Russian rockets. Yeah. Uh, no longer is there, a, is there a space shuttle, so we were using other countries' rockets, more or less, right? Yeah, exactly. And you spent 166 days on this mission, so considerably longer, and made four more spacewalks, correct? Yeah, and uh, so it's probably easier just to kind of talk about both of the two long-duration missions yeah. at, the, at the same time because they're effectively the same. One, uh, the one in 2013, I... I wasn't a new guy, but I wasn't the commander of the space station. But my two crewmates were uh, Russian cosmonauts. I launched, I did a bunch of time in Russia and, and launched in Kazakhstan. And then in 2020, I was um, the experienced guy. I was the commander of the space station. 
also with two Russian cosmonauts. One of those cosmonauts, he was equally as experienced as I was, so either one of us could have been the, the commander. It was just more of a U.S.'s turn to do it. Um, but jumping ahead to the reentry, since we were just talking about that on the shuttle side, it probably takes a full month after you've been up there for six months. It takes a full month, I think, to really get back to totally normal. Mm -hmm. The first week or so, you're not very stable. We're not allowed to drive a car for two weeks. Um, you, you're a little ginger walking down the stairs, kind of. Yeah. You know, washing your hair actually is a violent action because you close your eyes and you're moving your head and you induce all this motion. And Oh, yeah. And that's really difficult. Um, but if you saw me in the store or the grocery store at week two, you probably couldn't tell, but I can tell. Mm -hmm. And so another month or so, and and you're you're pretty solid. The recovery in the gym, it's not about lifting a bunch of heavy weights. It's it's like cones on the court, going back and forth, one stand on one foot, throw a tennis ball against the wall. Yeah, those kind of things to get your balance system all back together. Yeah, yeah. you you uh, on the first on the second one, Expedition Thirty Five, you took a selfie, which is a point of noting at least, but it's a, so a selfie of your of yourself. It became one of the most popular photos in the of the country or the world that particular year was kind of neat, and you can go online and see it real easily. The second, uh, the third, excuse me, the third expedition, sixty two in twenty twenty, which is was less than two years ago, which is magnificent. But you uh, became the five hundredth five hundredth human in space uh, in a documentary called Among the Stars, which I've watched uh, about your journey is is was made. Is this guy, this camera guy, is it one of the astronauts? I know it is, but is he? Is that his particular role? Is just to film you and everything on board? Oh, you're looking at the guy. I was the, I was the filmer, the okay. sound guy, the producer, the director, and the subject. You know, because the um, the crew is what it is, mm -hmm. and the Russian, my two cosmonaut friends, were they had their jobs to do during the day. So, all of the footage in that documentary on the space flight, I set up the cameras and took it and re redid the take if it didn't oh, didn't capture. Cool. Um, but the, the two years leading up to the launch, there was a professional team, a really, really squared away organization. Mm -hmm. Fullwell 73 was the production team, but they, they did a great job uh, capturing and telling the story. What I love about it is it tells the team sport nature of spaceflight. It's not about the crew that puts the suit on. There's engineers and mission control folks mm -hmm. in multiple countries around the globe all working together to get pull this off. And they did a great job of telling that story. So not only are you there performing space missions and science experiments, you're actually having to film a, a documentary about yourself. I mean, that's incredible. Just the, the thought you have to put that on top of all the stuff you're already doing. Well, it the nice thing is you're doing stuff all day long that's interesting, right? And and it, the, the although the documentary is six hours, I guess it's six one-hour episodes, I don't know what the ratio is of filmed versus what made it and didn't, but it's 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 like an iceberg, you know, yeah. there's tens and tens, maybe hundreds of hours that don't make it into there. And, yeah. and there was so much that was filmed while I was on board the space station. Some of it really stupid. Some of it, 30 minutes of nothing with me floating in right at the end. You know, so they had to sort them sort through mm -hmm. all of what would be interesting in the storytelling. It was so really well done. What so. are, what would be, if there are any similar, I mean, you've gone to like these deep ends of the ocean and learned all of this kind of, you know, when you did the MIT set, like when I mean, you're going down way deep down into the earth and then you're going way above it. So are there any similarities there? Or were there any things that were kind of cool, like uh, parallels between your experiences, like deep within the earth and then so far above it? Um, I guess the fact that deep in the o or in the ocean and in space, it's not where we're meant to live. Yeah. So you need gear and you need equipment. And what I learned in both is that you you know you take care of your gear and it takes care of you and you got to trust your gear mm -hmm. and trust the people that are maintaining and helping and building and and repairing all of of the equipment um, and then knowing what to do when something doesn't go right mm -hmm. so that you can keep yourself alive and keep your body alive yeah uh, and that falls back to to training so I don't know if I'm answering your yeah, question no, no, your question sure. yeah yeah yeah. Um, do you, one of the psychological things we were wondering is going from space and like you said, going to subway earlier, how do you personally feel coming from the space station and all this down to becoming not a regular guy, but living almost a regular existence, going out to eat, sleeping in a bed, 
normal bed. Is there a is there a kind of a, a buzzkill, so to speak, maybe the wrong word, but going from that to that, how does one become a regular person after doing what you've done? Well, I think I think um, we strive to remain regular people even when we're there and coming back. I do remember after my first deployment to Afghanistan, coming back, landed at the airport, and that's just that short 15-minute drive from the airport to my house, driving through the streets of Norfolk, and there was Target, and it was nighttime, and there's lights everywhere, and there's restaurants and McDonald's and signs and noises and traffic lights. That was a lot. Yeah. It, yeah. It struck me like, wow, I didn't ex- expect it to be weird to pass by a Target. And because you're, you just were so used to austere environment for so long. And, and so that was different. Um, coming back from, from space, I never really had any significant thoughts like that. You know, it was just earth is your home and, and you just want to get back. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, now that we've had COVID people can probably appreciate this a little bit more, but when you're on board the space station for six months, you're living at work and it's a cool work. Yeah. But you're, you're wake up and you're at work and you do your work and you're there and you brush your teeth at work and you go to bed at work. And that's fine for a couple of weeks, three weeks or a month, but eventually that gets old. Mm-hmm. And even though you're, you can look out the window and see earth and that does help put things in perspective, mm-hmm. it's, it's still mentally fatiguing. Mm-hmm. And so Six months is a long time. I think the perfect mission length was would be four months, mm-hmm. because you it takes a while to get comfortable and feel like you understand and you can hear. Like after a few weeks or a month or so, you can float by something and hear the noise, and you go, oh, "That that noise isn't right." Yeah. Um, or you see some tool floating, and you go, oh, "I know where this is supposed to go back," and you just mm-hmm. put it back. Um, but so. Um, yeah, they. I forget what I was where I was going with that, but was it peaceful up there? Very, particularly at the end of the workday. So I, that's a good question, actually. I mean, a good lead into that is what's a typical work week like? So Monday through Fridays are work days. We start at about seven thirty in the morning. We end about seven thirty at night. In that twelve hour period of time, is an hour for lunch and a total of about two hours for exercise. It takes a, roughly an hour to do the weightlifting and a half hour on a bike or treadmill, and then they give you a half hour to clean up and cool down. Is that mandated, the exercise? It, it's on the schedule. I mean, you could not do it, and it would you would be kind of a not-so-good astronaut if you did that, <laughs> but um, no one is going to shoot you in the head if yeah, you don't, but yeah. you're, it's for your own best interest because we've learned over time that, uh, and it's not about being fit and strong. It's about bone health. Mm-hmm. If we did no exercise up there, we'd come back with weak and decayed bones like a very severe osteoporosis patient. Mm. And we've learned over 20 plus years of, of people in space that um, weighted exercise totally mitigates bone bone decay. Wow. Uh, so it's it's really, really important. Makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, in that 12-hour day is exercise and food. Uh, and then you're following this schedule of time, timeline that they put together and you do all that. Uh, Saturdays are generally a half day. We do housekeeping and cleaning and, and Sundays are completely day off. And so your question is, what, is it peaceful up there during the day? You're busy. You're doing this. You're always worried about, am I behind or what's the next thing I got to do? Do I got to be on TV next? Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a funny story about that for in a second. And, um, and, but in the evening, every night when I was brushing my teeth, I always made a point to do it in the window. And it's all quiet. The window, the lights are turned down. You're you're done for the day. You're about to turn in, and just sitting there brushing your teeth, watching Earth go by. It was the greatest, greatest, most. That was my most peaceful time every day. I I know we're tired. Of, I got to interject no, we're, this we're, question. We're good. Take your time. So, 2008 to 2020, 12 year span is not a political question at all. Did you see any changes in the earth, like the way that it looked, you know, from those, you, it's a 12 year span, you know, lots yeah. happened in 12 years on this place. Yeah. Could you, could you notice anything from that vantage point? If you just looked out the window, it might be difficult, but oftentimes the, the scientists would put together, Hey, take a picture of this lake. This is what it looked like on your last mission. Mm-hmm. And there were several 
bodies of water that were significantly smaller. Mm-hmm. I noticed that. The other difference in the, that I could see visually, because people often ask, too, could you tell that it was COVID going down on Earth when you're up there? Oh, yeah. And generally, no, because you remember people talk about, oh, the cities aren't populated, so the smog is down and you know, blah, blah, blah. Couldn't see that from space, at least not with our visual naked eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you could tell, normal, normal non-COVID times, the airplane contrails going into and out of the major airport hubs on the European side and the North American side at different times of the day, you see this huge confluence of contrails. In COVID, there was none, none of it. No airplanes mm-hmm. flying. You'd see an occasional one contrail flying across the, the yeah. Atlantic. Uh, that was the one thing I could tell difference. Yeah. Interesting. So Chris, you accumulated in your three, uh, trips to space, 10 spacewalks, 377 days total in space, uh, the fifth most in American history. I mean, that's remarkable. Uh, before we move on from this and I I hate to leave the space because it's so fascinating. You had a a TV story you wanted to share real quick. You mentioned the TV. Oh yeah. This is kind of funny. Uh, uh, Um, so you're busy doing, doing stuff and mostly that stuff is experiments. You know, we're, we're activating experiments for for the scientists on the ground. And I'm doing my experiment, and like I'm, with beakers and test tubes and stuff? all kinds like of things. That's a whole nother hour topic about yeah. what you know. Some animals, some yeah. are are mechanical things. Yeah. Some are with water. Some are with fire. Some are you know all different stuff. This particular day, I don't remember what I was doing, but I was looking at my watch like, oh, I got to be on tele- NASA TV in like four minutes, but I'm almost done. Let me just hurry up and finish. <laughs> and I had to pee really bad, mm-hmm. and uh, and I had to change my shirt, and so I I do it. I finish. The experiment, and I I go zipping down the um, the the module to go to the bathroom, and after a certain time you, amount of time, you just you know how to turn, you know how to do it, and you float right into the toilet, and and I did that on rote memorization. I whip around the corner, and my feet go into the stirrups, and my hand is reaching out to grab the urinal, and all of a sudden this thing goes over my head. And I'm like, oh, that's that's weird, and I'm like reaching for it, and I move it off my face. And I realize it's soaking wet and I take it off and it's men's jogging shorts with the, the mesh liner completely <laughs> soaked all over. And my, my crewmate, Luca, who's a really sweaty guy when he exercises and he's my dear friend, I love him. Uh, he had just gotten off the treadmill and he had changed in the bathroom <laughs> and he left his shorts floating oh, in the God. middle. Oh, and man. so I'm I'm trying to pee. I'm trying to deal with this wet thing. I got to change my shirt in 90 seconds. I got to be on television. I get it all done. I get it off. I'm wiping the off my face and and I go out. Hi, I'm astronaut Chris Cassidy, live on the International <laughs> Space Station. Yeah, <laughs> keeping it all together. Keeping it yeah. all together when I'm like about to throw up. <laughs> that is fantastic. So inevitably, your time in space comes to an end, and you essentially retire from NASA and from the the military, USC, U.S. Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. Uh, currently, they're moving kind of back, a bit forward quickly, but currently, you are the president and CEO of the Medal of Honor Museum which is currently in construction set to open in 2024 here in Arlington, Texas. Yep. That's what's brought you back to the Metroplex, which we're grateful for. That's how you and I connected first. Can we talk about that for briefly? And then that's, that's, we wanted to end with the medal of honor in your current. Situation. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, last summer when I was winding up my, my career at NASA, my, a friend of mine who's on the board of directors at the, at our museum, he called me up and said, would you be interested in working in the nonprofit world and coming to join our, our project with the Medal of Honor Museum. And I learned more about it, learned what it, where it was, what the mission was and what the state of construction or, you know, at that point there was no construction and, and I just kind of got excited about it and it seemed like a good fit. What I loved about my time in the military and at NASA, I felt like I was serving the nation. You know, I got to do a lot of cool stuff personally, but really when it boiled down to it as serving the nation. Mm-hmm. And that's what I feel I can do here just outside of the uniform is serve the nation, build this thing, bring something cool to DFW, but really bring it to the nation. So that's kind of all pretty cool. And um, so, Before yeah. Said, the, the, the snippet I found is 40 million Americans have served in the armed forces since the Civil War and 3,511 only have earned the Medal of Honor. So it's a really rarefied air so to speak in that regard so you're dealing with people that have done significantly valuable things in the military exactly and there's 66 of them living today currently yeah yeah so it's a it's a it's a passing treasure that we have to uh 
help tell their story. I saw it on the website, which is fantastic. It's uh, mohmuseum.org, mm-hmm. correct? Um, yep. They they list all the all the recipients, and but the board of directors is is a who's who of people. It's U.S. presidents, uh, people like yourself that that have done significant things in the in the world. It's it's amazing board of directors. We had a we had a board meeting last week, and I remember just sitting there going. Why am I at the head of this table? This is really humbling. The, now the presidents are advisors; they're not yes, on the yeah. actual board of directors. But right. but yeah, that we're very blessed to have their their support. Well, we just spent two episodes finding out why. You know, you right. you got a lot of reasons why. Oh, I think. thank you so, for saying that. And thank it's you. awesome to have you here. And I know that um, I know that this area getting that Medal of Honor Museum was a big catch too. I mean, that was yeah. not easy lifting, and I know that everyone who was involved in that including Judge Whitley and these other folks at the county level were very uh, enthused about it. And you're going to work with a former uh, Kay Granger staffer, uh, Miss Vandergriff. Yep, there absolutely. As well. So it's we're we can't I mean, just first time meeting you, you're the right guy for the job. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. No for doubt. I appreciate serving it, our country Ma- and married being to a woman that. named Peggy who you met at NASA. You at told NASA. us that and you're dealing with five children. Most of them are gr- old enough to be called grown ups, grown ups, yeah. five children. And with all that going on, it's like, what an incredible existence, man. Yep. We're life, grateful for the time. Life's good. Uh, we yep. always ask our guests the last question. It's it's, it's what we do for every guest. But all side your your family and your wife and maritable affairs what is the best day of your whole life you said that aside yeah you can't you can't no family, no, no yeah. family yeah because that yeah because everybody's uh, um, now some kids. people like yeah. um miss vandergriff's husband still did the family thing he was just he, he couldn't victor yeah. on here and he, he just went right for we it we couldn't he allow did. it though we, yeah you, 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 killed, you killed it <laughs> yeah no, just kidding no family yeah no. um i would probably say the the moment I opened the hatch on my first spacewalk, mm-hmm. yeah, that was just such a. It brought everything together, mm-hmm. all the hard work, all the everything. It was right there at that moment. Yeah. Well, those that have heard you speak today can appreciate it. So, thank you, Chris Cassidy. Thank uh, you, thank you, Captex Bank, for making this all happen. Yep, and I'm going to give a little uh, shout out to a guy that we lost, a good guy, uh, Ned Barlow, this past week. So this this episodes are are for him, and uh, and thank you again for all of your efforts and, and everything. Thanks for being a good dude, Chris. Thank, thank you, Chris. gentlemen. Appreciate it. Fortitude, fortitude, fortitude.